Hello, and welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast presented by Golf Digest. I'm Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest, and this is Episode 67. First, a quick note for those of you who might be new to the podcast, and I thank you very much for joining in. If you're on social media, you can keep track of the podcast by following me at Feed the Ball. I also hope you'll go to your favorite podcast provider, search for Feed the Ball, and push the subscribe button. And I emphatically encourage you to explore the show's archives, where you'll find, for free, at the click of a button, a deep, deep well of fascinating, in-depth discussions with the game's great designers. You can find those past episodes at feedtheball.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. Now, on to episode 67. You have to get up pretty early in the morning to outwork and out-hustle George Waters. Or outthink him. In so many ways, he comes from an older tradition in golf, from a bygone era in which well-traveled and well-educated people could ply their trade in a number of different fields and find success in many of them without specializing in any. Or, more precisely in the case of Waters, specializing and excelling in many different fields. Talking to Waters, you get the impression he's a mile wide and a mile deep. His plunge into the world of golf course architecture got real when he spent a summer, a season if you will, in Dornoch. He worked on the golf course during the day and used the rest of his time to play and travel and soak up Inverness and beyond. Upon returning to the States, he would finish his degree, earn an internship with Tom Doak at Renaissance Design, and work the grounds crew at places like Marion. He was just getting warmed up. The internship took him to a number of Golden Age clubs, and then to Tasmania for good measure. He later joined Doak in a more official capacity to help work and shape on projects like Sabonic and the Renaissance Club, before branching out into the crews of Kyle Phillips, Corin Crenshaw, Jeff Mingay, Jim Urbina, and others. Those types of experiences alone would have been enough for many of Walter's peers, or at least they'd be one hell of a good start to cracking into one of the most notoriously formidable professions. But somehow baked into all that travel and mucking around in the dust and the mud, there was enough time to write a book. It's called Sand and Golf, How Terrain Shapes the Game, and it's a must for your library. I think it's one of the most succinct and insightful books on golf courses to come around in the last decade. Sand and Golf is available wherever you buy books. Waters continued to work in golf design until a few years ago when he decided to dispense of his boots and sunblock and trade in life on equipment for life at the laptop. He's now the manager of education for the USGA Green Section, instructing fellow industry professionals on best practices, and writing articles on courses, agronomy, maintenance, architecture, and the effects of it all on the environment. Shaper, author, historian, photographer, teacher, father, Waters does it all. And he's a great conversationalist to boot. If you have a question or curiosity about golf courses, George is ready with an answer. Are you ready? Let's get the Q&A rolling with my deep and detailed talk with George Waters. It's kind of a dream situation for people who love golf and who know Lynx Golf is to be able to do what you did and, and spend... What was it like a, a whole summer in Dornick yeah, working it was there? Yeah, a whole summer. Yep. Yeah, that I mean that that's got to be a life changing event. It really was, uh, and you know it was it was very fortunate uh, in a lot of ways that it came together. Uh, 
at the time I was in my second or third year of undergraduate and had been, you know, increasingly interested in golf course architecture and had, had gotten into golf course architecture by way of reading uh, some of Tom Doak's books initially and then kind of broadening out beyond that to the, the works of Mackenzie and Thomas and so forth. And I used to call over, uh, you know, call over to Doak's office at the time. They they weren't as big of, a, of an enterprise as they are now, uh, certainly, you know, weren't as, as worldwide known and everything. And, you know, they would answer and I'd, I'd say, oh, you know, I really want to be a golf course architect i'm interested you know what should i do uh and they recommended one of those first calls well you know you, you really need to learn about Lynx golf and, and Lynx golf courses if you want to understand design so you know find a way to get over there and, and spend some time the way that tom did and uh you know really learn about Lynx golf and at the time i had had uh some experience in golf course maintenance i worked on the maintenance staff at st george's uh new york on long island uh which was about 10 minutes from where I grew up. And so that was something that I felt like I could offer. And so what I did was I just emailed every course, uh, you know, every links course that was basically highly rated in Doak's confidential guide, emailed all of them and said, you know, I'd really like to come and work on your green staff for the summer. I have some experience and really want to come and learn about links golf and, and all that. And the only place that got back to me uh, was Royal Dornick, which was fortunate uh, and doubly fortunate that they said yes. And they said that although they couldn't pay me as a paid staff member, uh, they would be able to put me up at the club manager's house and I would be able to caddy for some spending money and that they would let me, you know, basically work as a volunteer on the green staff uh, on the championship course at Royal Dornick uh, for the summer. And I'd be able to play as, as much golf as I wanted and I could caddy in my spare time. Um, and that sounded like a pretty incredible offer to, you know, a 20 year old me at the time uh, to just go over there and really immerse myself in it. Um, you know, I didn't know at the time uh, exactly what I was getting myself into. I mean, I had never seen a Lynx golf course in person, uh, I'd certainly seen photos and, and had, you know, an, a picture in my mind of what it would be like. Uh, but, you know, flying over, flying to London, then flying to Edinburgh, then, you know, taking, I want to say I took the bus, I either took a bus or a train, a train to Inverness and then a bus up to Dornoch. Uh, but I didn't have a rental car or anything. So I, I traveled up there by public transit and remember just getting dropped off in this, you know, the square in the middle of town in Dornoch and just being like, okay, <laughs> here we go. I'm here. Um, I guess when you're 20 so, years old, you're, you're young and dumb enough not to really worry about money or finances or logistics because that seems it seems like a simple thing to say. You called Doke's office and somebody there says, oh, just go over to Scotland for, for a year or whatever, you well, know, I mean, and, yeah. and learn Lynx golf. And you're like, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. And it was, you know, I mean, they they made it easy uh, at Dornick. You know, they're, they're, they're wonderful people up there. Uh, they were at the time and they, and they still are today. And I think they just you know, they really appreciate people that appreciate Lynx golf and are, and are willing to kind of go the extra distance to go to Dornoch. And so they made it easy for me, uh, you know, on the affordability side of things. I mean, they really kind of took care of me, even though they couldn't necessarily pay me a salary. Uh, they certainly, you know, accommodated me in any way, every way that they could. They made sure that I got around to see some of the other courses in the area and, and was able to travel after my time there working was done. But you know, really the time on the course was the big thing. Uh, and you know, they, I basically, I used to, my daily routine was we started work at 
I want to say five o'clock in the morning because the sun comes up there at like four or something in the summer. Um, so I'd ride my bike over uh, from the club manager's house uh, over to the maintenance facility, be there for five. We'd finish at like one, one thirty. I'd ride the bike back home, take a nap for like three hours, get up, have dinner, ride back over to the course most days and tee off at, you know, seven, seven thirty and have Royal Dornock more or less to myself. I mean, most people, you know, that were either visitors at the time uh, or, you know, people that lived in the town that played weren't really that interested in playing that late. Uh, but I thought it was, the, you know, the coolest thing in the world. And so I was just out there, you know, most nights just me and a handful of other people maybe and, and people walking their dogs and just kind of trying to take it all in and, and really immerse myself and experience the course in a lot of different moods and a lot of different weathers and, you know, all of those kind of changes that make Lynx golf really interesting. Uh, times when it had been raining and the course played a little bit softer, times when it was really gone through a dry spell and it was super firm, all the different wind directions. Uh, you know, I think that's one thing, you know, not to get off topic, but I think that's one thing that was really valuable about that summer and some of the other uh, kind of similar endeavors that I undertook was that they gave me the opportunity to really see a course over time. And, you know, from an architectural perspective, I would kind of liken it to, you know, going around and seeing a lot of courses uh, is really important in terms of kind of developing your palette of like what is possible and what is out there. Um, and some people have, you know, like Doak have like a photographic memory where they really remember all these features really well and can, can apply them. I don't quite have a photographic memory. Um, so I'm kind of taking concepts from those visits and, you know, things that I remember or something that reminds me, well, I better go back and look at this before I, you know, think any further about it. But the times that I've had, you know, a few opportunities to really spend an extended period of time with a course and really see how it plays in different conditions and see how it plays you know, depending on where I'm hitting my shots. I mean, I'm, you know, by no means a great golfer, a very average golfer. And so there are days when, you know, I'm certainly not playing a hole as it's intended. I would say that that's probably most days. And so getting to see a course from all these different spots that you end up uh, intentionally or unintentionally, I think really illuminates a lot of, you know, how the design features really, really work beyond that sort of intended you know, concept of a hole. I mean, I think that's a cool thing about Lynx golf in general is that a lot of those holes don't necessarily have like a concept. Uh, you know, they've, they've evolved to a certain degree. There are certainly ways to play them that are preferable to others, but it really varies depending on your kind of the game that you play and the conditions at the time. And I, I think that's kind of the genius. Uh, it's something that I certainly learned that summer at Dornick was that those courses have a lot of flexibility built into them just in the layout, the often open approaches, the width, even the bunker setup. And so it, it kind of, it invites you to play it in a lot of different ways because odds are you're going to see it in a lot of different conditions. And the reality is that most people are not executing a strategy consistently, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So you're kind of hitting the ball all over the place and, and there's something in that hole that still provides interest and still functions for you, you know, kind of wherever you end up from tee to green. I've always been interested in that concept of approaching golf or approaching design without intent. I think everything everything that's built, you know, over the last hundred years or what or however long you want to, whatever your time frame is, there was an architect and he's 
either aggressively or very minimally building some kind of strategy or concept, as you, to use your word, into the hole. But it seems like with links, a lot of links golf, uh, especially g- courses that were maybe originally developed in the 1800s, there really isn't that. It, it, maybe it evolves over the years, but but nobody thought about you know this bunker is placed here for a specific reason. It's almost just you know here's the tee, here's the green, and this is the natural ground in between the two. And there are a million different ways to navigate it, and we're okay with that. And I'm really intrigued in that concept. It seems like that would be such an interesting way to approach a modern design if you could get a good piece of land is to to really not even even think about it. Just put, you know, shape the green, shape the tees, and say, let it be as is, and go play it. You know, a lot of the best architects kind of recognize that, you know, golf course design and playing a golf course is not going to function the way that you would ever draw it out in some sort of a, you know, two-dimensional plan, you know, you hit from here to here, you hit from there to there. Uh, it's going to work out like that sometimes for, you know, for the vast majority of people, probably infrequently and for, you know, the really great players. Yeah. More frequently. Um, and so I think you want to have some of those concepts in play, you know, in place theoretically uh, for some of those players. But I think there has to be the recognition that, you know, for the vast majority of golfers uh, on a day-to-day basis, that flexibility is really is beneficial. And some of those concept type holes, I mean, you see these holes that have these kind of, you know, I feel like you see it in desert golf a lot where it's like this split fairway and there's one that's way down there with a bigger carry. And then there's another over here that's a, you know, theoretically a shorter carry. And it's, you know, it's supposed to be this kind of risk reward scenario, but like realistically, for the vast majority of golfers, they can't count on their drives enough to ever really even think about going for the further one unless they're just feeling reckless and the penalty is so severe if they miss that they don't even want to try. And so that that risk-reward element isn't as cool in real life as it is on paper. Like it looks really neat when you see the drawing of it and you're like, oh yeah, there's these different options and so forth. That doesn't quite translate into the ground. Whereas I think, you know, some things that look probably quite uninteresting in plan view. Uh, you know, the 14th at Dornick doesn't have any bunkers on it. It has this kind of plateau green that sticks out, uh, that's sort of narrow to the angle of play. I mean, that wouldn't necessarily look like much of anything in a sketch, uh, but it's, you know, arguably the most famous hole in the course, and it's it's certainly one that makes an impression on people, uh, visitors and, and regular players alike. And there's a lot of different ways to play that hole. And there's kind of the, you know, I think an implicit recognition that, you know, at least for me, I didn't really have much of an expectation of hitting and holding that or finding that green in regulation at all. And that was fine. And I think that that's something that, you know, you want to talk about things that aren't, you know, designed according to a formula or a plan. I mean, I think there's a lot of courses over there where there's not, or at least really cool holes over there that, you know, it's okay that, you know, the target might be too small for the length of shot that you're hitting. Well, you can kind of chip and putt or that, I mean, there's all these things that don't quite fit into the neat box of, you know, getting there in regulation and what might be fair and what might be this or that. And that whole, you know, was one that I played a lot of different ways that usually didn't involve the expectation of hitting that green in two. And I, I think most people don't really hit that green in two unless they're really playing well. And so then it becomes a, well, where do I want to miss to try to set up my chip? Well, I didn't get there. How do I want to try to adjust now? 
do I want to try to putt it? Do I want to try to do this and that? And so, I mean, the holes have that flexibility into them. And I think that there are modern courses that, that do have that, but I do think that there's probably a temptation to try to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to resist it, to try to design something into a hole that, you know, this is the thing of that hole is this, you know, diagonal carry or this or that. Um, whereas a lot of the times, you know, kind of a, a clever, cleverly contoured green, a sort of interesting angle that's created by a bunker or an out of bounds or whatever it might be is, you know, is often enough to create some pretty good interest uh, when cleverly done. Then the other side of that coin is, you know, there's sort of the, the simplicity way of designing something that doesn't have a lot of like preconceived notions to it, right? Like you just have a wide fairway an interesting green and, and one key bunker, and that's enough to kind of dictate the strategy. On the other hand, there's some really cool examples of, you know, courses over there that have a ton of hazards where it's almost so many that there's, there's not really any kind of a defined strategy because there's so many hazards that some are relevant to others, some are relevant to certain players at certain times, and others are relevant to other players at other times. And so trying to create your own strategy through that kind of maze of situations is another way of creating that sort of, you know, I don't want to say conceptless hole, but, you know, a hole without a ton of preconceived notions as to how you're supposed to play it, uh, that can still be really fun and has that, that flexibility to it. And I think that there's, there's good modern examples of, of kind of both types, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, in general, I think that probably modern architecture is a little bit hesitant to have some of those kind of blank slate type holes that just kind of, you know, well, you figure out what your strategy is on this hole. We're not, we're not laying it out for you in the, in the yardage guide or whatever it is. Yeah. It's hard to come by those. I, I, can think of very few examples. I think it's just difficult for architects not to get in there and want to tweak that strategy. You know, that's what they do. That's what where they kind of uh, can make their name and reputation to sort of like define. It. I've always see. I always think that's the interesting thing. Like mid-century architects often get you know blasted for their one-dimensional strategies. But if you if you have a bunker on one side of the fairway and you're rewarding that position with a better angle or a, a better lie, for instance you're basically dictating the one best way to play the hole. I think it'd be much more interesting to, like you were saying, kind of experiment and play with examples where there there's just absolutely no defined strategy. And it could be, like you said, either just having very little out there other than, than the way the ground moves or just fill it up with all kinds of you know obstacles. I remember Ron Witten has said several times that he'd like to build a course or see a course built where you just went to like a bulldozer training site where you got, got a bunch of guys who didn't know how to operate heavy machinery, just have them practice and push around landforms. So it's just completely irregular. And then just, you know, put some tees and greens on it. And then that's, that's your golf course. It's like the uh, kind of the ultimate made randomness. Um, but I guess we're getting, I guess we're having this conversation. We're getting the point or some of us are that we're, we're kind of bored and ready to see something a little different. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not think speaking that for you, but. No, I mean, I think that that's, you know, I think that there's, there's aspects of that that are, that are understandable. Um, you know, and I, I do think that there's, the time is probably right in, in modern design for a little bit of a, of a turning of the page to some new things. And, and I think that that's coming and you start to see some hints of it in the, 
you know, some sort of bunker list design come up recently. You know, the use of mounding as a feature. I mean, I think that some of the, the interesting things that are going to come up as we, you know, as, as golf course architecture evolves going forward are going to come from those pressures of, you know, the cost to maintain courses and are there ways to, you know, still create interesting design uh, that fit within that kind of, you know, the ever tightening kind of cost parameters and business parameters that, that places are working under. Um, and I think, you know, that necessity is kind of the mother of invention with things. And it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, I think it's hard for the architectural world to kind of just turn the page all of a sudden and be like, well, let's just start doing a different thing now. I think it kind of evolves as a, as a response to, you know, needs that exist out there. And so I think we'll start to see a little bit of the changes there. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think about, you know, courses like the old course and courses like national golf links that I really like that have tons of hazards, like so many hazards that so many bunkers anyway, that, you know, it creates that kind of abstract strategy where, you know, the bunkers that I'm really paying attention to during the course of a round might be totally different than the ones that you're paying attention to during the course of a round. And they might be totally different round around depending on how I'm hitting the ball. And I love that ability to have, you know, so many out there that it's, you know, it creates that, that kind of strategic interest. The downside of it is that, you know, at least in the modern world, the expectations for bunker conditioning are so high that, you know, going out and designing a course with a hundred and I mean, I don't know how many are at the national golf links, but you know, certainly more than a hundred would be really sort of cost prohibitive because someone wants them raked every day and, and all of this stuff. Uh, whereas at the time, and certainly in the, in the case of the old course, that expectation wasn't there. So you had that flexibility to kind of, you know, be a little bit more loose with it and, and do some more things like that. I think that, you know, the courses that have the kind of intense amount of bunkering to create that kind of interest for all, are going to be tougher to do going forward. And I, and I think it's probably going to be the less is more right. type thing where you're looking at the key hazards, where you're looking at landforms as opposed to bunkers necessarily as hazards. And that can be, you know, in terms of contour as, as a hazard, which, which can be a really effective hazard or like outright, you know, Somerset Hills type mounding features that, that are a, a true, you know, a hazard in every sense of the world word, but don't have, you know, sort of a sand maintenance component mm -hmm. to them. You mentioned this, and it has to do with different playing abilities and how different bunkers or different strategies on a, on a golf hole will affect people based on their ability and the caliber of their play. How important is strategy to the average golfer? And I look at it like we've got, you know, according to the NGF, maybe $23 million, mil, million golfers in the country of that let's say 10 to 15 are the are the people that like play a lot of golf they're they're your real consumer base what percentage out of them even thinks about strategy even has the time for strategy who how many of them want a strategic confrontation on a golf hole well i think that i mean this is i think a really great question and to me the the answer to this uh and I've got a specific course in mind uh, to reference here, but to me, the answer to this is that 
when this is really, really well done, like when strategy and, and strategic interest are really, really well done, it doesn't need to be this, you know, for the average player, it's not this academic exercise of, you know, oh, this is a kind of classic Redan concept. Here's what I need to do to kind of take advantage of the, you know, it doesn't become, you know, what it is for those of us that are really immersed in architecture. What it ends up being is that, you know, you, you develop an interest in the whole, you develop some familiarity with the implications of various positions. And then the strategy just kind of, you know, the strategy part just kind of embeds itself in, in how you play the course. And uh, the example of that, that really uh, jumps to mind as, as just having been so well done and so sort of conceptually accessible to all types of golfers uh, was a really early Gil Hans course called Tallgrass Golf Club out on Long Island, uh, sadly closed and now uh, covered in solar panels. But at the time, uh, you know, in its heyday, environmentalists would love that. It's a yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it. You know, <laughs> it was a, a good trade out for some. I mean, there's an awful lot of uh, open country out there that they could have put sod farms on, but they they chose that, and and so so that was that. Uh, you can still kind of sadly see you know one or two bunkers uh, that remain out there in the in the aerial with all the solar panels everywhere. Um, but the beauty of that course was. It had some really sophisticated architectural concepts to it. I mean, it had kind of replicated the Muirfield routing where it had these two concentric loops of nines that rotated in opposite directions in sort of recognition of, you know, number one, it was a flattish site. And number two, it was an often a breezy site. And so the wind was definitely a factor there. And Gil was cognizant of wanting golfers to see it from different angles. There were some great sort of strategic hole, classic hole references out there. I mean, there was sort of a short hole. There was a Redanish kind of hole. Um, but there was an awful lot of holes out there. I mean, like the 10th hole there was like one of my all-time favorite holes. Two bunkers on the hole. One kind of, it's kind of T, bunker on the direct line, and then green beyond, and this wide fairway that swings around it. And, you know, the guys that I played with out there were not architecture junkies. They weren't people that you know, played all the time, you know, they play a few times a year, but my friends loved playing out there and you'd hear them say stuff like, you know, we'd hop out of the car in the parking lot and they'd be like, Oh, you know, backwards wind. Number one's going to be playing downwind. That'll be good. I'll get on there in two. And they, you just, I, I never, I made a point of never kind of pressing the things that I thought were cool architecturally about the course on them. I really tried to just listen during those rounds more. And I'd hear them say stuff like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm left to where I want to be there. I'm going to, I'm going to probably have to take, you know, a different club or I'm just going to bash one down there next to the green and, and give it my best hope for, for trying to flop on. And sometimes it would work out and sometimes it wouldn't. And, you know, Gil had done such a good job there of designing these holes that had, that didn't have, you know, like a yes or no strategic component to them. It was more like gradients of strategy. It was kind of the closer that you were to this bunker the better, but if you were, you know, slightly farther away, you could still consider it. If you were that much further away, it was still achievable, but it was going to be a tougher shot. And I'd hear these guys kind of have these conversations amongst themselves and with me about like, wow, should I go for this or not? To me, that's the beauty of really well-executed strategy is that it doesn't need to be this, you know, either I carry the this bunker at this distance and, and have it work out or 
you know, it doesn't have to be this big thing. It just, it just kind of happens. You just, you know, you play the course a few times, you understand it, you remember some things and that's the, you know, that's where the interest and the fun comes from. And those guys loved going out there and they had holes that, you know, that they really remembered were their favorites. They had holes that they knew they had different ways to play. You'd hear them say things like, oh, I caught my drive that time. I can, you, you know, I can really go for this one or whatever it was. And I, I think that's how, I think that's what you're hoping for with the vast majority of players uh, and the kind of strategy to create is that it's not this big conceptual mind exercise. It's just part of playing the game. And it, it just, the course is more fun because you're thinking about the shots and you're cursing yourself when you've put yourself in a bad position, which I think is, you know, I mean, that's golf. Yeah. There, you're right. There are gradients of, of how you can present a strategic variety on a golf holds. I think about the 1920s or the 19 teens when a lot of the great golf courses were being built and all, all these ideas are first being generated and, and pra- put into practice in the ground. And it, it strikes me that that was a different, such a different era so many of the people that played golf then were coming from more of a privileged background. It's not true across the board, but it, it you know think about all the great clubs in the Northeast and how golf emanates out from that. I mean, it's it was a gentleman's sport, and a lot of the early golfers were people who were looking for leisure activities that challenged them. There was you know maybe they they would hunt, maybe they would um, you know ride ride horses, or, or you know they they were looking for something that thrilled them you know to get an adrenaline rush so it made sense that when they played golf they viewed it in a different way as sort of like a, a contest of the will you know uh, if you went in the bunker you know you were you were just absolutely dead you know you they embraced that challenge that strategic challenge of trying to to overcome the golf course and that got lost as you know the demographics of, of golf changed and it's just it's hard for me to put modern players in that mindset there is a, a class of people who travel and play golf a lot who like that. But for the most part, I mean, I think people are just really trying to make contact with the ball and put the ball in between the two fairway lines. And if they've done that, then that's a success. You want to complicate things by putting a diagonal string of bunkers in from them and make them try to like pick their line. Like that can be like too confusing. And I'm not advocating for dumbed down architecture at all. I think we need, we need, you know, more great, compelling tall grass style architecture, but it does, it does pose a little bit of a, of a challenge for people who are designing and maintaining golf courses is how much strategy is it really worth and and how how much strategy and confrontation are people really asking for? Yeah. And I, you know, I think that, I mean, I'd say a couple of things on that. I mean, I think that, you know, I would, I would take, I would take the, you know, the outlook uh, on the kind of essence of the game back earlier, you know, before it was, a game of the sort of northeastern elites, uh, at least at the very earliest days, and you take it back to those Scottish Lynx courses and the, the links of Great Britain and Ireland. I think there was a welcoming, you know, there was an acceptance and a welcoming of the fact that the game was sort of this struggle between you and and what the course and what nature were kind of throwing at you, and you know, an acceptance of the fact that there was going to be you know, elements of that that were, I mean, not necessarily, you know, I would think unfair is, is a reasonable word to use. I mean, there was going to be parts of that that were going to be, yeah, you were you know, willing you were to accept your undue fate. result. You were going to get, you know, dealt a bad hand on something that you thought was good. There were going to be some holes that are just too long for you to get to. 
even on your best day, but you were still going to have to figure out a way to play it. And, and that was kind of embraced, I think, as this, you know, that golf was this struggle between, you know, the golfer and the environment and their own, you know, kind of mental toughness in terms of being willing to kind of accept these challenges and accept the setbacks. And, you know, I can remember early on in Dornick getting some pretty welcoming glances from some of the guys that I played with in the town when I was, you know, very comfortable playing out of a bunker sideways or playing out of a bunker backwards. And I'd hear they'd be like, oh, a lot of your countrymen don't want to do that. And, and the more that I caddied, you know, they'd often put me with American guys over there because they felt like, oh, you know, American will be happy to see you. Um, it was true. Uh, you know, playing backwards or playing sideways wasn't something that really was on the table that often. And, and if you suggested it as a caddy, they kind of looked at you like, uh, uh, no, I'm going to be playing at the hole. And they'd hit the face of the bunker and, you know, be back in it and then just throw the ball out with their hand and be like, hey, we'll call that one a Dornick. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was, uh, there was definitely a different spirit to it. And I think that that's, that's something that's, that's a little bit different. Well, significantly different now is that there isn't that embrace of, you know, the game being, you know, kind of a challenge and not being fair all the time. Uh, and in fact, being kind of inherently unfair if you want to use the word fair at all or that fairness really isn't necessarily a part of it uh, so much I mean there's obviously limits to that but I think that sort of sporting spirit really is at the origins of the game and then kind of carried through and at some point you know perhaps has gotten muddied uh, to a degree but I think it goes back earlier than than kind of the the sort of elite days uh, in the early days of American golf and in terms of, you know, what people are, you know, that I think that there needs to be a recognition of that, you know, hitting it between the fairway lines uh, kind of thing. But I think there's a room for a lot of strategy while keeping that intact. I mean, you look at Pinehurst number two, and I'm just trying to think of hardly any forced carries out there from, from T to green. I and mean, they're just so few, if I can even really think of them. And so, I mean, I think that's a great example of there being a course that has tons of interest in tons of locations and lots of strategy and lots of challenge while still being totally welcoming to the, you know, I'm just trying to get it down the fairway and I'm not trying to, you know, really go through a mind-bending experience out here. And I think that's why the course has been so popular is because it, you know, so popular for so long is because it accommodates that. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good modern examples of that, you know, that are still intact. I mean, I think, you know, Pacific Dunes is a great example. I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot. Uh, Tallgrass was a great example where there was, you know, you could just kind of bunt the ball along and it, you know, focus on trying to put one foot in front of the other and then keep the ball going forward. Uh, or you could kind of think your way around it. And even if you were kind of plotting along at whatever your ability might be, odds are you were going to encounter a situation or another during the course of the round that was going to, you know, at least catch your attention uh, and be kind of interesting. So I think that there's, I think there's definitely room for, for strategy and accommodating, you know, what people are, are prepared to, to devote to the game, you know, sort of mentally and, and time-wise. Pinehurst number two is a great example of of the variety of, of ways you can present strategy is because the 
the disadvent, unless you're in a, you know, you could be in a bunker and, and have a difficult time with it. But a lot of the time, the disadvantageous position is, you know, the player won't realize that they were put in a disadvantageous position until after they've played their shot and maybe even on the next shot, then they realize, oh, I was, I was way down there at the wrong side of the fairway. And, and now, you know, I had no chance from down there, but they didn't feel penalized because of it at the time. You know, that's just, it's the beautiful subtlety of that golf course and that type of, of strategy. And I think that, you know, I mean, for a lot of people, you know, the penalty never quite, you know, it never quite hits you in, in feeling like you just were penalized, which I think is is a beauty of it, too, is that, you know, Piners number two could, has a way of kind of sneaking away strokes from you without it necessarily feeling like, oh, man, I got into X, Y, or Z situation and just it was hopeless. It's more like, you know, you may play the hole and feel like, ah, you know, I played it pretty well and I just didn't make the putt, made a six, whatever it was. And, you know, kind of move along perfectly happily to the next hole and then kind of review the scorecard afterwards. If you know, or review the match afterwards and feel like, ah, you know, some shots got away from me there. And you, you almost kind of don't necessarily always feel it. I mean, it's not, it's not one of those courses that really beats you over the head with these strategic, concepts it's it's that gradations it's a little bit of positioning but there's a lot of opportunities to kind of rescue getting out of position and there's a lot of ways to make you know ways to make a par ways to make a bogey if you're an average golfer out there that you know i think really makes it you know approachable and enjoyable for a lot of people and sort of the restoration of the sandy waste areas i mean i would say that the the sort of sandscapes out there are like a perfect kind of fractional penalty slash unpredictability kind of hazard where you're, you know, you can get a really pretty decent lie in a lot of situations over there and you're, you're well out of position, but you can recover pretty well. You can also get some really tough lies, but again, you're, you know, you've, you've gotten yourself pretty far out of the way in most cases there to be dealing with that. So there's certainly not a, an undue extraction there, but at the same time, they just have a way of kind of testing your mental metal a little bit of, well, can I, can I live with the fact that this one is stuck inside this wiregrass bush? And well, you know, if you move it forward, odds are you'll still have a chance to come back in the hole, but you got to be, you know, prepared to take your medicine sometimes and, and know when to, when the opportunity's there to, to try to sneak and get away with something. And that was a golf course that you spent some time working on. Yeah. I worked on the, the restoration there. Um, I was kind of in the second, probably the second portion of it. They had been out there working for a while uh, and needed some help. And I believe, as I understand it, uh, it was another you know example of some fortuitous timing in my career where I think most of Bill and Ben's guys were down at Streamsong, and that was kind of full bore project mode going down in Florida. And so they were tied up and needed a little extra help at Pinehurst. Uh, and I was, you know, obviously over the moon to get the call uh, and to get to go and be there. And, you know, we were staying at the Carolina Hotel and walking over to course two and and just diving in. I remember the first day walking around out there, you know, it's probably hard for people to imagine. But, I mean, it was all so torn up at the time that it was just like, it was like, wow, like, does anybody know you guys are doing this out here? Like, it was, I mean, <laughs> to see a course of that stature you know, as a, as a full on construction site was, 
was like very jarring. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, everybody out there, uh, you know, certainly felt the pressure, uh, to, to put, you know, a course of that stature in American golf, you know, really under the knife. Um, but you could really easily see from the work that they had done by the time I got there and from the old photos that, you know, that the path they were on was the right one and that it was going to work out. And it was really for all that was done in a certain respect, it was all kind of there already. And it was just sort of a, it was an unearthing exercise. It was sort of a, it was a revealing exercise more than it was, you know, any kind of a, of a big redesign or anything. I mean, it, it was truly all there. It was just a matter of unearthing it and kind of bringing it all back to the surface, whether that was the sandy waste areas, whether that was, you know, aspects of the bunkering that had gotten kind of muted or lost over time compared to what were original uh, and restoring some of the roughness to it and just, you know, not being afraid to go out there and, put some scuffs in and, and, you know, some little tough spots and some scratches and some bunker faces and, and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, wiregrass plants and, you know, kind of awkward places. I mean, I can remember, uh, Toby Cobb, who was the project manager for Bill and Ben at the time we played together on the first day, uh, that it reopened and he hit into this clump of wiregrass plants that Kyle Franz and I had planted in the middle of this bunker on the 14th hole next to the green. And he looked over at us and he's like, which one of you guys, Yeah. and I'm probably putting that in a, <laughs> in a politer terms than he put it, uh, which one of you guys planted these things right here? Uh, but I believe that they're still there to this day. They were the last time I was there. Um, and so it was just a matter of doing those kinds of things. Uh, but it was, you know, it was daunting certainly to, to see it uh, at the outset and it was a really cool thing to be a part of. And it, it really taught me a lot about that sort of, you know, the beauty of a kind of semi random, inconsistent, changeable hazard, like those sandscapes are where, you know, even from when we finished it to what they are today, the plant communities have changed. Uh, what's growing in certain spots has changed and they're, you know, involved in a kind of constant dance to manage, well, what's, you know, what's acceptable in these areas and what isn't and what's too difficult and what's not. And it's just really cool because it's, it's always fresh. It's always different. Every time you play a hole, they're a little bit different. Um, but again, there's never that sort of undue penalty. It's always just kind of, you know, it's new, it's fresh, it's interesting. And you've got the kind of basic idea of how you'd like to play the hole in mind, but that's going to go out the window pretty quickly for most people. And then you're going to have to kind of take it from there, but those options are still there. So it was, it was really, I mean, I, I would put it at the absolute top of, of projects I was involved in and, and really just a lot of fun. On a scale of one to 10, from the time that you kind of got there and started working, where would you gauge Bill Coors confidence level that it was going to turn out as good as it did? Cause he's not oh, one to were, get I ahead mean, of himself about, they you know. were, I mean, they were well into it by the time I was there. Um, and you know, my guess is that, you know, I mean, Bill had played the course, uh, you know, throughout yeah, he was his in college so many, yeah, so many times. Days. Um, so I think he was, he was really familiar with it. I know that Bill's a Bill and Ben both are such great students of history that, they knew what the right things to do there were. Uh, I'm sure that's why they were chosen to do the job. And I'm, I'm totally confident that they were totally confident that, that that was all, 
you know, that it was the right thing to do. But, you know, I think that they're also comfortable with, you know, and I can remember Bill talking with folks on the Pinehurst maintenance team about, you know, what was going to go into the managing those sandscapes. And, you know, I think that Bill was comfortable and I think he made everyone there comfortable, I hope, uh, with the idea that this was going to be an evolving thing and that, you know, there wasn't necessarily going to be a plan on day one that was going to be applicable five years down the road, two years down the road, whatever it was. Uh, and so I think that that helped, you know, I think that helped him feel comfortable with, with everything that was being done. And, you know, I'm not sure how anybody felt the day that they first went out there and started, you know, removing all that Bermuda grass sod and kind of exposing the beginnings of those, uh, those sandscapes. But, by the time I was there, I think everybody, you know, felt pretty comfortable about it. But, you know, it was it was a big, it was a big deal. Um, and, you know, I'm certain that at the very least, I feel like I can say without, you know, putting words into anybody's mouth that, that everybody probably breathed a sigh of relief when it was all done and had come out really well and, you know, was everything that, that you saw in the old photos and, and kind of, and then some, and, and how well received it was, uh, from sort of a, you know, golfers at large standpoint to, you know, players at the highest levels. Uh, I think it was something that, that as far as I know, you know, the vast majority of the golf world embraced, uh, as being sort of this restoration of this sort of uniquely American, you know, kind of cradle of American golf type course um so i'm sure everybody was happy when it was done but uh it was it was i'm sure they were also you know true believers that it was going to come out really well let's go back and pick up dornick again just briefly you spend uh time there you play a lot of links golf i imagine as to some degree that's something like a purification process it's probably hard to come back to the majority of american golf after you've done what, what you did, but you do come back. And is that when you begin your internship with Tom Doak? Yeah. So I, my sort of timeline, uh, was, it was, it's an interesting couple of steps. Um, so I worked at Dornick, I believe it was the, I think it was the summer between my junior and senior year in college. And then the year I was graduating, I, I called Doak's office again and said, well, you know, I went to Scotland last summer. I saw all this stuff. I worked at Dornick. And they said, "Oh, you know, great. You need to learn how to build golf courses if you want to. If you want to do anything, uh, you know, go find a way to to work on a construction project." And I think I want to say they were working on Apache Stronghold at the time. And I can remember talking with Jim Urbina, and he said that, "Well, you know, we can't quite get you out here. Uh, you know, we've got some labor issues, this and that, whatever it is. We can't. We can't have." people from out of state coming in here and, and working on the project. So we're going to, you know, we're not going to be able to do it this time. And so I called around to a bunch of just golf course, uh, golf course builders, people that were on the golf course builders association of America website. And I think I chose ones that had, had won like builder of the year at some point or another, uh, and was fortunate, uh, to end up with a company called Niebuhr golf. And they were doing, uh, project right here near where I live, uh, today, which is, is kind of a funny, I mean, I live about 10 minutes from USJ headquarters now. And, uh, that course Hamilton farms is about 10 minutes from USJ headquarters. So 
over the course of 20 years, I ended up about 10 minutes from where I started. But the, <laughs> they were working on that. They were finishing that project up and they said, well, you know, you can come out if you want. And we'll let you do, you know, we'll let you help us finish the course and we'll see how things go from there. Um, and it was certainly, I mean, that was a rude awakening because, you know, I had never done really worked that hard before. Uh, and I was, I was coming out of college and, you know, basically just got handed pallet after pallet of sod and told to go out there and put down as much of this sod as fast as you can. Uh, and so that summer was certainly a little bit of a, of a trial by fire after that, but they liked me and, and they gave me a, you know, some opportunities to begin to learn, uh, how to use some equipment, uh, during the process. I mean, there were still no end to sod laying and rock picking. Uh, but they let me, you know, if something was available for 15, 20 minutes, hey, why don't you hop on that thing and see what you can do? And they let me uh, come along with them to Arizona after and work on sort of a newer construction <clears throat> where there was more uh, in the way of kind of heavy equipment work to be done, surveying work to be done, more kind of heavier construction to be done. And again, they were, you know, they left me with some of the tougher jobs as, as one of the younger people, but they put me in sort of more supervisory roles. And they also let me begin to use kind of more and more of the equipment. And then I knew that I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to work in golf course construction, you know, on the contractor side forever. It was, it was enjoyable and I learned a lot, but it wasn't something that, that I felt like I wanted to do consistently because there's a lot of, you know, I mean, there's the real challenges there just on the sort of business aspect of things. I mean, they're, you know, you're trying to get things done quickly. You're trying to get things done as profitably as you can. Uh, and certainly my interest was definitely, you know, to at least, you know, from time to time, take a little bit of extra time with things and, and kind of, you know, study and kind of think about the design and think about what I wanted to do. Uh, and I knew that, you know, the architecture side of things was, was more where my interests lie. But after that summer, I went to graduate school and it just so happened that the first summer I was in grad school, uh, Doak's internship flyer just happened to appear in our folder and I really just happened to stumble across it. Um, and so I applied and they, they remembered me from, from calling them and, and bothering them every summer. And so I got an interview and unfortunately I had been, you know, I'd been doing everything that they told me to do. And so I made for a good candidate, uh, and, and was able to, you know, was fortunate to, to get the internship that At summer. At least they knew you followed directions well. They did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, followed directions well and followed them to the letter. And so, uh, that worked out really well. And, and the really good thing, uh, you know, as people will know about Doak and Corin Crenshaw and, and those guys is that, you know, having construction skill kind of paved the way for me to tag along with them, basically. Uh, you know, I think that that's something that worked out really well for me and, and worked out really well for me kind of longer term uh, down the road than what I expected when that sort of financial crash hit in 2008 and the, you know, the, the job world in golf course architecture just kind of fragmented and shattered into these sort of million pieces, I was able to do, you know, to stay busy uh, and do really well through that period because I had construction experience, because I could kind of contribute on that shaping side of things 
number one, they were willing to have me around uh, and bring me to places, which was, you know, critical in my sort of education. And number two, it gave me something that I could do, you know, to pay and live, uh, you know, for extended periods of time. I mean, the the construction of these courses lasts for months and months and months. And if there's, you know, me having skills that I could kind of contribute from the beginning to the end of that process made it easier for them to, to call me and keep me around and take me places and stuff. And so it just, the, the fit really worked well because I had that sort of maintenance and construction background prior to getting the internship. I was very fortunate. Um, the list of projects I had that summer were <clears throat> restoration work at Yeamans Hall, uh, restoration work at Mid-Ocean, and then got back from two or three weeks in Bermuda and took all the warm weather tropical clothes out of my suitcase and put the winter clothes in and flew down to Australia uh, for Barnboogle. And, you know, certainly the role that I played at Barnboogle was relatively minor in the grand scheme of things, but it gave me a chance to see, I mean, I was there on really day one. I mean, the day that we, you know, I met Brian Schneider for the first time at the airport in LA and and met Kyle Franz for the first time at the airport in LA. And we all flew to Australia together and and saw the site, you know, kind of in the very early stages of clearing, if they'd really started clearing at all. Um, And so to really get a chance to experience, you know, number one, to see kind of Tom's routing laid over, kind of the raw ground was a really, you know, a massive educational experience. Uh, And then to kind of see, you know, some of the decisions that got made to make that all work, some of the tweaks that were made over time, uh, and to really just spend time with that process was incredible. And I knew a lot about Lynx Golf, but I mean, obviously the chance to really work on, you know, one of the great Lynx Golf sites of, you know, certainly of modern time, uh, was really, really, uh, an incredible experience for, for someone so early in their career. Uh, and to get to just, you know, I mean, it was, it was a very, and Tom's projects are all like that. And that, you know, and Bill and Ben, I would say the same, uh, it's a very kind of informal atmosphere and it's, you know, for someone who got into architecture reading, you know, Tom Doak's books, I mean, I'd, I'd never, I'd say that it never, you know, got boring to me to be walking around out on a golf course with Tom Doak and listening to him just kind of talk through what he was thinking. And, you know, I always thought it was cool that he'd ask, you know, what I thought. And then it was neat that he listened sometimes. And you learn something when he said, oh, no, that's not going to work because of this. So it was, I mean, that was a really, really cool experience. And then after my internship year, I think the next summer they had you know, the way that the projects worked out, I think they wanted me to go to Ballyneal, but the timing didn't work out. And so that summer I ended up going to Marion and working on the green staff. And again, you know, working on the green staff at different places was just a really good kind of model for me to really spend a ton of time with the course, watch how people played it, played it myself, and kind of begin to learn that relationship between maintenance and design because the two have to be for a course to really be successful, they have to be able to maintain it at some 
level or another, or at least the, you know, the expectation needs to be there that, you know, this feature is going to require X amount of maintenance to be the way that you want it to be. And so getting a chance to see architectural features that I thought were cool and then seeing all that went into maintaining them at different standards. I mean, you know, certainly Marion is about as high of a standard as there really can be. And Dornick, although a very high standard for Lynx golf was a totally different animal than a summer working at Marion. And so it was cool to see both ends of that spectrum and, and kind of compare the differences and then to, you know, get to spend time at Marion obviously was like, you know, again, a kind of a dream come true type thing. And again, put me in a good neighborhood to where, you know, I could go over to Rolling Green if I wanted to go see something. I could go. There was all these great courses just right around there. And working at Marion kind of opened the door to be able to just pop in and say, oh, you know, can I go walk around for the evening? And they'd be sure, fine. So that was really good. And then the following summer, uh, I graduated and headed to Sabonic for my first sort of all school done kind of first major project with Doak. Uh, any good stories from Sabonic? I've heard a few. That that was an interesting project, obviously, with, with Tom's guys and you and then working with Nicholas's crew and two different approaches to how to build a golf course. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I would say that, I mean, there was a bunch, there was a bunch of things that were interesting about that project. Uh, by the time I got there, most of the, you know, the major design decisions had been made. And, and it was kind of a, it was just a, you know, all systems go kind of effort at, at building and finishing the golf course. But, you know, there'd be days that, you know, Jack and Tom would have a walkthrough. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me, you know, not having at the time spent, you know, a lot of time with anyone that was really famous in the golf world. I mean, I thought that Tom was really famous. And, you know, I don't want him to take this the wrong way, but I mean, Jack is really famous. And so, you know, to see what that looked like when Jack arrived on site was like, <laughs> I mean, mass amount of people. I think he came out in a helicopter one time, one time, like Jim Nance flew out and met him and they did an interview in the fairway. Like it was a big, big deal when he came out there. And so <laughs> that, I mean, that was just a crazy thing to see in general, to just kind of be immersed in that. Um, and the, Sabonic was obviously a project that Jack was giving, you know, a full amount of attention to. So he was out there, you know, pretty regularly and he was out there when Tom was out there for the most part. And so, I mean, that was, that was something that was pretty amazing to see, uh, just being out there, you know, was a pretty amazing thing also. I mean, as, as a kid who grew up on Long Island, I mean, the idea that you would be, you know, literally standing on a hill and looking at the clubhouse of the National Golf Links and the clubhouse of Shinnecock Hills in the other direction, and that you'd be driving, you know, through Shinnecock on the way to work every day was like, you know, beyond belief. And, you know, I think that there was certainly that belief at the time, and it seems like there always is, that, you know, all the great sites in some of these places are gone. And that, you know, well, I was on Long Island to see Subonic and Friars had both built. And so, you know, that, that would have been considered pretty improbable, uh, you know, five years before it happened, I would say. Um, so, 
to see two courses of that magnitude built out there close to the same time and, and in modern, <clears throat> you know, in the modern era. Yeah. When you're, I think it was when you're 80 wild. years old and, and reflecting back on your long, you know, illustrious life, it won't get much better than that to be, you know, side by side at those two golf courses. Cause I, I think their, their fame will continue to rise and they'll be considered uh, two of our best in, in the world really. But I'm going to put you on yeah. the spot now and, yep. and ask you uh, how you thought Sabonak turned out. And if it was just Tom's project and he didn't have to coordinate with Nicholas, would it be better? Would it be worse? What's your evaluation of that golf course? I mean, the thing that I think is probably different about Sabonak than <clears throat> a lot of Tom's other projects, and I don't think that this would be you know, something that anyone would disagree with, I think that it's harder than the vast majority of his courses. Uh, I would say that it's harder for players at all levels. It's a, it's a very tough golf course. I think that it's gotten tougher over time. I know that they've taken some steps to make some holes, you know, even more stern than what we left. And that's, you know, I think that what was illuminating about that was, I mean, you can, you can attribute that partially to the influence of, of Jack on the project. I think you can also attribute part of that to the owner. Uh, and, and people don't, you know, sort of people that are interested in architecture, I think, underestimate the impact that the owner has on a project. And people think that, you know, Tom or whoever goes out there and has this design and, you know, this is my design. That's it's not exactly how it works. I mean, you're talking about somebody that spent an incredible amount of money to build this project. And obviously, you know, they're going to want to have a say uh, in aspects of it, to be sure. Uh, and I think that Michael, uh, wanted the course to be challenging. Uh, I think he wanted it to be challenging for the best players for sure. Um, and he's made some changes out there, you know, after the design was completed that, that went towards that goal. And so I think that's, that's the big difference is that it is, it's really tough. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not fun, but it is certainly testing, uh, all the way throughout, uh, the greens are probably a little smaller <clears throat> than they might have been if Tom had done them. And so they're just, they're tough targets. It's mm-hmm. tough around them. There's some tough bunkers. Uh, it's, it's not an easy golf course. And I would say that that's, I think that's probably the biggest difference. Uh, and, you know, without knowing all the backstory behind it, I think that Part of that would be the collaboration with Jack, and part of it would be the collaboration with with uh, Mr. Pascucci. Back in the uh, design shaping days of your career, you worked with uh, a lot of notable people, including we've spoken about Tom Doak and, and Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw, um, Jeff Mingay, a friend of the show. You worked with him on a few projects. Jim Urbina, another friend. Kyle Phillips is an interesting character to me. I don't. He doesn't do a lot of media, as far as I know. And I'm just wondering, what, is it, what was it like to work with Kyle, especially coming off of working with, with Tom on so many projects and seeing one approach? I always think of Phillips as a, a naturalist, somebody who might move around a lot of earth, but it, at the end of it, you would think that he got a, a beautiful natural site that didn't need much work at all. Tell me a little bit about that process and what it's like to work with Kyle Phillips. Well, I would say that you know, the sort of the chronology of, of the projects that I worked on with, <clears throat> with Phillips, uh, matters a little bit. 
Um, because my the first project I worked on with them was California Golf Club, and that process was, I would say for the most part, very familiar. Uh, we had a lot of, you know, really good quality photos there of a bunch of the McKenzie bunkering. <coughs> Sorry. And we were looking to replicate, you know, in the situations where that was an opportunity, we were looking to replicate that to the best of our abilities. And that was, you know, no different than what I'd done at Positiempo or Claremont or, you know, any of the restoration projects with Doak. And that was certainly Kyle's outlook there. Um, there was a bunch of holes at Cal Club where restoration really wasn't going to be possible because a road had come through, had shifted a bunch of stuff, you know, and obviously the whole, the old holes were in the road and now they're, you know, the road's there. So, uh, Kyle did a really good job of kind of bringing those concepts back on ground that wasn't exactly the same, obviously, as, as the original ground. And I think that that's probably a similar approach to, to what Tom would have done, you know, there as well, where you just, I think any architect that's done enough quote unquote restoration work recognizes that, you know, there are situations where the sort of purest view of a restoration just isn't going to be there. I mean, golf courses have kind of complex histories, right? And so they're not all just basically sitting in the same routing, same greens, and all you need to do is fix the bunker. Some of them have been changed in ways that you can't undo and you need to kind of embrace and, and do the best that you can with. Um, so I think that a project like Cal Club was really a, pr a pretty similar process at pretty similar scale of things uh, as what I would have seen with Tom. The I worked with Kyle Phillips on Wilshire Country Club, and that was the same. I mean, I would say, you know, we stuck pretty closely to, to what was in the original aerials. And, you know, that was, again, pretty similar. I think of the European projects that I worked on with Kyle, which were, I don't know what the name of it ended up being, but uh, the Rocco Forte course in Sicily and uh, PGA Sweden, there was more, uh, you know, there was definitely more in the way of, of earth moving there. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, when people think about minimalism, I think there needs to be the recognition that there can be, you know, a fair amount of earth moving at times, in a, in a minimalist design. I, I think that, you know, people have this image in their mind of, you know, some of these places have just having just been, you know, sort of found out there. And it, that's true at times, uh, you know, a site like Barn Boogle, a lot of that really was kind of just sitting there and there wasn't big work to be done. But there are times when, when big work does need to be done, even in Tom's projects and in Bill and Ben's projects. And, you know, certainly the site dictates that to a degree. I mean, Tom and Bill and Ben would have both moved, you know, especially uh, on the red course at stream song, I think pretty substantial amounts of material in order to make some of that, you know, appear from, from the former mining site. And yeah. So, the first six holes on red are all created. Yeah. And you see some of those before and after shots where it's just, yeah, just you know, this disaster, you know, mess <laughs> or whatever. And then there's, there's this beautiful golf hole there. So, you know, I think that Kyle Phillips has had some sites, uh, that required that level of intervention. Um, and I think that he's comfortable with it. 
um, which I think Tom and Bill and Ben are, are too, to a degree. Um, Kyle's maybe more comfortable with it or more, you know, open to a site that, that isn't just sitting there uh, and, and has the, has the belief and, and has the knowledge that with the resources put to it, that it can, you know, can be fashioned into something uh, that's going to work. But I don't think that the approaches are, are all that different uh, really. I mean, I think it's, it's probably more to do with, with the sites uh, that the architects have had the opportunity to work with and what was needed, you know, to make those sites work, I would say. I mean, there may be, you know, I mean, if, if Kyle has a, has a slightly more of an impulse towards manipulating things than, than Tom or Bill or Ben does, maybe. But, I mean, I think it's it's a product of of site and, again, client. I mean, I think people, you know, again, really need to recognize that, you know, the people that are investing in these projects and, and driving these sort of visions have an idea of what they're looking for. And while it's certainly, you know, part of an architect's responsibility is to steer the client towards decisions that are going to, you know, help them realize their goals, even if they don't necessarily, you know, even if the client doesn't necessarily at first envision what is going to help them reach their goals, that's part of the architect's job is to help them see that uh, or help persuade them towards that. Uh, But clients have a big influence on things. And so, you know, I think something like the project in Sicily they were probably looking for a, a link style project uh, similar to what Kyle had kind of made his name on uh, at Kings Barnes. It's not necessarily a similar design, but a similar character. And so that involved, you know, that involved a little more intervention. Uh, and I think that the client's really happy with it and the project's done really well. And so I think that's that, that's probably the, the difference that you see from time to time. But I mean, I think that a project like Cal Club, I don't know that I don't know that the approach would have been really all that different at all. The Cal Club it comes up periodically on this podcast. We've we've talked about that a little bit. Wilshire Wilshire Country Club in Los Angeles is a very very nice property, a very cool place to be. It's right there in the middle of the city. There's some cool barrancas that run through the property. A really inventive use strategic use of those just a really compelling site to be on first thing you notice though is that bunkering what were the conversations like that that you were privy to about i guess reinstalling that degree of bunkering and there's certain holes where it's just almost overwhelming was there any discussion that you recall of saying like maybe we should tone this down i mean it's a very it's sort of like a very show-offy kind of bunkering too and i say that out of admiration not as not really as a critique but it it is very um eye-catching and it wants to be seen uh so was did that ever um was that an exciting maybe another way to look at it is was that an exciting prospect to to create all that bunkering or was there a any sort of trepidation that like wow this is a lot i mean i think that the vast majority of that i mean I'm, i'm trying to reflect back to the the old aerials but I think the vast majority of that was all there. I mean, if not all of it. And it had that level of sort of, you know, intricacy and complexity of the, the edge. And I think my understanding of it, and I, you know, the people that know the history of the course better would <coughs> would be able to speak to it better than I would, um, was that it had started with simpler bunkers and mechan- uh What's his name there? Macbeth. I want to Norm- say, yeah, I want to say McCann, and I meant Macbeth. Uh, 
Macbeth got to know Mackenzie. I think Macbeth was a was a pretty accomplished golfer out in California and had gotten to know Mackenzie. Now I want to say that he the story that I heard, and I don't know that this is true, uh, so people shouldn't hold me to this, but was that he had played in like the opening at Cypress Point or whatever, and had, you know, kind of been mind blown uh by the sight of it and just everything that was going on out there. And we've all seen the, you know, the old photos of Cypress Point. And so one can imagine how compelling that would have been and kind of returned to Wilshire and, you know, felt like we got to turn this up a little bit. And that's when the, the bunkering kind of really took off in that, in the number of bunkers and the intricacy of the bunkers uh, in all of those different features. And it had those, you know, the sort of double greens on all the par threes were there. Um, it was, I mean, it was just a, a really wild design. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, I mean, and I don't remember having any real second thoughts about it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a flattish property, you know, for the most part and barring the Barranca and the different ways that it comes into play, that that's a course that's going to rest on, on kind of bunkering and, and greens. Um, and so getting, uh, you know, getting pretty jazzy with the bunkering there, I think made sense to me, uh, at the time. And, and certainly, you know, I think it still does. Uh, I know that they've, you know, the bunkers there are challenging also. Uh, and I know that there's, you know, there were certainly, uh, I've heard people talk about how hard they are in spots, how easy it is to get into sort of a tight corner in areas and really have kind of tough bunker shots. And, you know, while I think that's certainly true, uh, I also think that's a little bit of the, you know, to me, that's a little bit of the sporting spirit of golf a little bit that, that has been lost to a degree uh, in the United States where, I mean, at least for me philosophically, and whether that's from having spent time at Dornick or, or wherever, uh, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that you can end up in a spot in a bunker that is, you know, a difficult enough shot that you either can't play directly at the flag or, you know, you may even need to play away from the green. I mean, I've, I've done that enough times that I feel like it's not out of bounds uh, in architecture. And I think that, you know, when you hear people talk about how sand isn't really a hazard anymore, right? Bunkers aren't a hazard. As soon as they become a hazard, then the complaints start of, well, they're not fair. And it's like, well, you know, I think that's a, that's a balance that, that I just, you know, I can't quite wrap my head around how you're going to complain about something as being unfair on the one hand. And then when it becomes difficult, complain about it, you know, you know, it's either sterile or it's unfair and there's no kind of gradient in between. Uh, I'm comfortable with bunkers that are, that are challenging. Uh, and I know that they, you know, the ones at Wilshire are certainly maintenance intensive, uh, at the standard that they want to maintain them. And I think that's something that, that they wanted that was, you know, part of the design. And, and that is, uh, so I'm comfortable with that as well. So I yeah, think, I think that, uh, that's something that Jeff Mingay says a lot is I've heard him say is, you know, God, American golfers are so soft, you know, like, like 
it's okay to, to ruffle them up and rough them up a little bit. You know, you don't have to get everything. Uh, everything doesn't have to be catered to you, you know, like man up. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, I think that having some tough spots in bunkers is good. Uh, I, I really do believe that. I think it makes the game more interesting and I'm not a great golfer. Uh, and so, you know, I suffer in those situations as much as, as anyone does. Um, but I think it's part of the game and I think it's part of what makes the game fun and part of what makes it interesting. And, you know, if you look at places like LA country club, you know, which is sort of just down the way from Wilshire, I mean, there's some good rough spots on that course now, uh, after the restoration work that Gil did, um, which was, you know, after the Wilshire time. And, you know, I think it, it's, it just, it adds a lot to that course that, that those situations arise. And so, I think that the Wilshire bunkering achieves that. Um, the you know the incredible thing about Wilshire really is that you know there's still there's still some more on the table out there. Kind of, I mean, when you see old pictures of the 18th green complex with how close the green went to the barranca and the, and the nature of the barranca at the time, you know, back in the in the times there there wasn't the same urban watershed around that course as there is now. I mean, the, the old pictures, there's like oil derricks out around the Hollywood Hills within sight of Wilshire, which is, you know, really hard to imagine, but it is true. So and so there will be blood. That barranca that didn't era. carry much water. And so it was sort of this sandy bottom feature. And they've got pictures of people playing out of the barranca next to 18 green. Like it's a bunker basically. Um, and if they could ever, you know, figure out a way to balance you know, all the modern pressures that are on that Barranca with some sort of playability. I mean, there's still some cool things left to be done at Wilshire uh, if they're ever able to kind of get it all figured out, which they may not be able to. But the old, some of those old Barranca features were incredibly compelling uh, and just really, I mean, you want to talk about tough hazards. I mean, you're basically just looking at this eroded, embankment and playing out of the bunker, you know, playing out of this sandy bottomed wash next to the green. Uh, that was <laughs> certainly an interesting feature. There's no expectation of a good lie in a barranca. I would say not. Or at least I not then. I would say not. Yeah. No. So we're, we are flying through this, George. Uh, we've got to, we've got to pull it up to uh, contemporary times a little bit. You made a decision to um, kind of step away from the design game and take a position with the USGA. First of all, you wrote, you came from uh, your experience building golf courses in some some great locations, uh, often on sand. You wrote a book about sand. You uh, spent a season in Dornuck, and then you moved to what was it like to move to the USGA? Where you know this is the this is the corporation that brought us you know the official USGA green um, construction method. Um, that must have been quite a move for you. What was what was that your thinking behind that move, and how did you get into the USGA role? The well, a funny story on the on the USGA green uh, before we get into the into the full story. But they were uh, they were good humored enough about my my background when I interviewed that uh, a couple of the guys that were that were in on the interview, Dave Otis and uh, Jim Moore, uh, joked with me that they're like, "Well, judging by the people you've worked with, you may have never actually built a USGA green," which was not totally true, but not far from being true. Um, so I definitely came from a little bit. Uh, of a different perspective, probably. Uh, the the way that I ended up at the USGA was I was working on uh, renovations at a place called Watchung Valley Golf Club, uh, which is about 15 or 20 minutes away. Uh, 
from USGA headquarters. It was kind of my first job as as a solo architect, uh, a really big deal for me uh, and a really big deal uh, for the club and a great property, really good architecture out there from the 1920s uh, and a lot of, you know, just cool stuff to work with. And then some, you know, some kind of modern interventions into the course that had kind of created this jumbled architecture. And so kind of correcting some of that and getting everything back to a cohesive style and, you know, to have the opportunity to work on a property and a course like that in a neighborhood, you know, that's close by to Plainfield, close by to Ball. I mean, all these kind of famous places was really, really cool. And I was, you know, 150% committed to the project. Uh, I mean, I was, I was living in a hotel about 10 minutes away from USJ headquarters for, you know, two or three months in the spring and two or three months in the fall, you know, basically every year uh, for multiple years working on the kind of different phases of the project and in between, you know, traveling and working on projects for other architects as well. And, you know, while things were certainly, I mean, as I looked at my goal of of kind of becoming a practicing golf course architect, things were going really well. Uh, The other side of it was that, you know, the better things went, I was kind of on the road 200 days a year and, and, you know, an increasing amount of time traveling. And I met, some people at the USGA while I was working on the work at Watchung Valley. And I just remember, uh, you know, a member of the ownership family at Watchung Valley worked at the USGA, works at the USGA and, and was telling me, well, you know, I was like, oh, you know, how was your, how was your week or whatever it was? We were out talking on site and she said, oh, you know, we're, we're going out to the national golf links next week. We're, we're working on this historical project and we need to go out and see their archives and do a little bit of work with their historian. And then we're going to pop over to wherever it was on the way back. I mean, and it sounded pretty cool. <laughs> I, was, I was living in this hotel and eating Chinese food like night after night. And I'm like, gosh, it sounds, sounds all right. And so I just happened to look on their website, the USJ website, and they had a, an application for a, a job opening in the green section in the education and outreach department. And a lot of the qualifications were, you know, background in golf course design, golf course maintenance, golf course construction, um, good writing ability, um, you know, interest in taking photographs and things. And I, I thought, well, you know, I, I like all those things and sound pretty neat. I was like, I'll just, I'll send an application in. I'll probably never hear back from them. And then I was working in England on a project for Frank Pont and got a call, uh, you know, several months after I'd sent in the application and kind of, you know, had given it up and figured, oh, you know, I might not ever hear from them. And uh, they were, you know, interested and, and kind of one thing worked out and, uh, came in for an interview and then really liked it. And, you know, uh, so it just kind of, things just kind of fell into place. Um, and I think that, you know, like, like you kind of alluded to at the beginning, I mean, the, the background that I was coming from, uh, was, you know, in my perception was, was different, uh, considerably different from, from what would be the sort of typical outlook at the green section. And what I found was, that really isn't the case. Uh, you know, the agronomists that I met really early on, uh, and, and the folks uh, certainly in the decision-making roles in the green section, the focus was really on kind of the practicalities of, you know, working with the budgets that facilities had and trying to get the best possible results in sort of, you know, a science-based 
fashion, but within the budgets and within the capabilities of what they saw. And there's certainly a recognition, I think, that, you know, there's a cost involved with something like the USGA Green. And if that isn't, you know, within the full budget, well, are there ways to refine that and get, you know, the next best result uh, in different ways? Sure. Uh, And I think that's something that, you know, they've written a lot about. Uh, It's something that, you know, they certainly practice what they preach on. And it was something that I was kind of I think I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, I probably went into it, you know, crossing my fingers a little bit uh, that, you know, we weren't going to be coming from too different of a place uh, kind of philosophically. And I I think that, you know, what I found was that I was really, really comfortable with the outlook that everybody had and, you know, with what they believed in terms of, you know, what was for the best, you know, conditioning wise and, you know, trying to help courses be, economically and environmentally sustainable going forward um, and helping courses to live within their means and helping them to kind of thrive uh, in a variety of different ways. I mean, we look at it, you know, in a few different avenues than the golf course architecture side, but I mean, I think the end goal is, is probably the same uh, in terms of just trying to secure the long-term health of facilities, not just at that, you know, upper echelon, uh, but across the board as much as possible. So in regards to USGA greens, have you come to the opinion that if it's affordable on any level that most golf courses should go that route? Or even if it's not quite affordable, they should maybe take the extra step to ensure that they've got USGA greens from a, a long-term performance and function functionality perspective. It's kind of like bunker liners. It's a tremendous upfront cost and a lot of times we don't really know if it's going to pay off down the line because it's kind of a some in some cases it's a newer product, but it, it it is a big cost. And you know, for years and years we didn't have bunker liners, so you know it's it's another decision. Of course, has to weigh. Weigh, but is that USGA greens? Is that something that you think is important for golf courses to have if they can afford it? I think the short answer is that it it really depends. Um, Your head, you know. I think on on sites that I think on sites that. You know, certainly on sites that have poor soils, which is, you know, probably the vast majority of them, doing some kind of a modified, you know, you're going to be modifying the root zone of that, of those green sites for golf in a modern context, no matter what, at this point. I mean, you're not just using the dirt that's there uh, in 90% of cases because it just can't support turf at the standard you know, that's expected of putting greens these days. Um, and they modified green sites in the twenties. Uh, and there's, you know, illustrations of green profiles that, you know, look awfully similar to the concepts that you'd see in a USGA green from Donald Ross and from CB McDonald. So there was certainly this recognition that, you know, the existing soils were not always going to be cooperative, uh, in terms of what you wanted to achieve, turf growth wise. Um, you know, there are definitely sandy sites out there where, and I've worked on plenty of them with Tom, uh, Rossapena, uh, Barnboogle, where, you know, they basically used the native sandy soil and, you know, have been able to get a really good result. With that said, I mean, I think even at places like Bandon where they did use native soil, I think they picked and chose, you know, there was a scientific approach to it in terms of you weren't just taking the sand that was there and accepting it and whatever inconsistencies there were from one green site to the next. I think they 
go about the process in terms of finding, you know, certain types of sand that match the performance characteristics that they want in terms of, you know, supporting grass growth, playability, whatever it is, and then try to get that consistency from green site to green site. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, I've built plenty of greens that were not to USGA spec, but I haven't built very many that were just native soil. And and in the cases where I did, it was, you know, pure, very consistent dune sand, uh, which is rare, uh, rare to find. And so in the vast majority of cases, you're going to have such a degree of inconsistency of soil types from hole to hole, uh, you know, that it's, you can't expect to get consistent results or even, you know, successful results from site to site. And so I think that's when, you know, using a consistent method, uh, whether it's the USGA method, whether it's modifications on it, I think that's where it makes a lot of sense. Um, especially when you consider the sort of modern context of what people expect. I mean, if, I think if people are going to expect, you know, relatively consistent playing conditions and if they're going to expect, you know, uniform turf coverage and, you know, mowing at a certain height, there kind of needs to be some infrastructure there to support that on the vast majority of sites. Uh, so I think that's, that's kind of my answer to that. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of modifications on the USGA method. I mean, we just published an updated version and it recognizes that there are ways that people are doing things that are adjusted you know, with varying amounts of, of scientific research behind it, or whether it's just sort of a feeling behind it that, hey, this might work a little differently. And I think that that's, you know, I think that the thing that I became comfortable with about the USGA Green is that they're, by placing a standard out there, and by, you know, giving people a roadmap that's going to create something, you know, that's relatively consistent, you're going to have relatively predictable results, not only does it deliver that, but it also gives something, it puts something out there that people can build from in terms of, well, you know, this isn't exactly what I want to do. This isn't exactly within my cost means, but I can do, you know, this and this. And it, you know, the performance may not be exactly the same. The scientific research may not support it in the same way, but, you know, it gives people a, a jumping off point if they want to do something differently. So, Yeah it makes sense at a lot of sites uh, and the vast majority of sites use something either a usga green or, or some derivation of it i think that's what i appreciate about what you do with the usga and all your writings and listeners can go google you and usga online and find a lot of the stories that you've written uh, if you can't find them on the usga website is that you approach this with a very practical uh in a very practical way. I mean, that makes sense. Your writings are very like on point. You're not trying, you know, like I I can sit here in this studio and, and, you know, wax about architecture and approach it from an artistic and an intellectual idealistic way. And not that you can't, I think our conversation bears that out that, that you could speak um, idealistically about these topics as well. But what you deliver for the USGA is something very practical that, that a reader or a golf course can take with them and say, Oh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. A story about maintaining off fairway areas in a natural state. And and it's it's a little more complicated than it appears. Yeah, it does take take uh, another level of maintenance. You know, you can present that kind of information and people, it's very practical and people can use it. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what, you know, I think that's what 
the green section is all about is, and especially the sort of education and outreach department where I work is, you know, we're about giving golf courses practical information. And we recognize that, you know, there's a whole range of golf facilities out there. And there are some places that want to have, that have the resources and want to have this, this, and this level of conditioning and are asking, you know, how do we get there? And there's, you know, there's a roadmap to getting there. And then there's a lot of places that don't have endless resources that want to have the best that they can, that want to conserve, you know, where they can and, you know, what's the roadmap for getting there. And we try to kind of provide information, whether that's, you know, through our green section record, uh, whether that's through the course consulting service, whether that's through, you know, some of the various uh, technology tools that we're developing and providing to facilities. You know, I think the goal is to help places live within their means and kind of thrive in, in a challenging business. Um, and so that's, that's certainly a goal that I feel very comfortable with uh, and one that I'm, I'm proud to contribute to. Let's start kind of moving this toward the exit now. We've been, I'll just ask you this right up front. I ask everybody the same question. What's the best modern golf course you've ever seen that you did not have a part in creating? Uh, I mean, I think that for me, uh, Pacific Dunes is, is kind of the, uh, is kind of the gold standard for me of modern courses. And I'm, you know, I, I just, that course, uh, takes a lot of boxes for me in terms of being really fun, uh, being really interesting, you know, the massive wide range of conditions that you see, uh, out on the Oregon coast being really pretty and just a great, you know, it's just a really good experience. Uh, and you know, being someone who can have, you know, off days on the course at any given time, it's a kind of course that, you know, I really value because it's fun playing whenever. I mean, I've played really well out there. I've played, you know, poorly out there. I've played in conditions where it was just so hard that, you know, I mean, but always found it enjoyable. I mean, I think one of the best shots I've ever hit in my life was a driver on 14 at Pacific Dunes into the wind, like full driver from like 120. Par and, three, by the way. Yeah, pin high. Uh, so it was, <laughs> that tells you how windy it was. Uh, but I mean, the course affords those kind of moments. Uh, however you're playing, however the conditions are, you know, I think it's just, you know, it's visually stunning. Uh, to me, I think that's that's kind of about everything that I want from a golf course. That seems to be Pacific Dune seems to be one of these places where it was just maybe like a little bit like Cypress Point, just the unique, maybe once in a lifetime, who knows, combination of the right person on the right site at the right time you know and tom tom's done great work all over the world you know he's he's got courses up and down the top 100 lists and you know some people might not even think pacific dunes is his best you know bill obviously does great work a lot of people do great work but there's something to me that is unique about pacific dunes in a way that i, I can't i've never been able to quite summarize it or, or put my finger on exactly what it is but it's there's just an energy about that that golf course that just seems almost magical. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that there's certainly uh, a heavy contingent of folks that, that feel like Sandhills is, 
you know, potentially their number one oh, for sure. uh, modern course. For me, the the proximity to the ocean is is something that I can't quite I can't quite get past that with Sandhills. I'm like, I love Sandhills and I love being out in the Sandhills and I've worked on projects out there and, and spent a lot of time out there. But as someone who spent a lot of time uh on coastal links courses, uh, you know, I did my graduate school thesis on links golf, I mean, coastal golf courses and coastal dunes, and so I've just spent so much time on the coast in that kind of environment that that's always going to kind of put that one tick above for me. You're also a great photographer. Your book uh, is filled with photographs that I believe you took all the photographs yourself. I did. Yeah. What is uh, so? A couple things. What do you normally shoot with? For any listeners who are interested in taking great photographs of golf course, like me, who sucks at it. But if I, do you have any tips for for taking photographs? And what do you shoot with? The what I shoot with is a Canon twenty D, uh, which I think is way outdated by any measure at this point. Um, we've got some more uh, up to date tools here at the USGA that are fun to use, uh, but I haven't. I haven't upgraded my camera in a long time. I have a nice lens on it, um, but the camera body itself uh, is is well out of date. And I think if you read any, you know, camera photography forum or something, they'd be like, I wouldn't give you $10 for that camera. But, you know, I, I mean, it, it always took good pictures for me. So I don't know. I don't know what, what I need to upgrade, but at some point I probably do. Um, my, I mean, my secret to getting good photos, uh, is time uh, spent out in beautiful places. Um, I was just very, very, uh, you know, committed to spending a lot of time walking golf courses and not necessarily playing. So that was a big part of it is that I recognized that, you know, me playing a course doesn't necessarily give me a better understanding of it on its own. I mean, if I had one visit to a course, sure. I like to play as often as I can, but, if I'm really going to try to study it, it's probably to try to walk around late after play is done and really take some pictures, spend some time and really kind of walk through everything. And so that presented a lot of opportunities uh, to get some good photos where I just happened to be out there when the light was right. And, you know, the moment was right to get a good picture. I mean, the, some of the pictures that I have of Rye in my book, I mean, are some of my favorite pictures that I've ever taken. And literally the day I was there, it was so windy and so gray and like rainy for periods and just brutal, like no hope of a photo. And the storm just kind of blew through in the last 15 minutes of light when I was just kind of walking around out there after I'd played. And I basically just sprinting around the course, trying to get as many pictures as I could because the light was like moments from disappearing I was fortunate to catch a lot of those things and I, you know, I call it luck, but I mean, I think it's just, I was out somewhere beautiful often enough that uh, I was going to get some good opportunities and I, and I knew how to kind of set up a photo and what I was, what I was looking for kind of composition wise. Um, so that was really, the, that's the secret is, is time. And I take less great photos of golf courses now because uh, I have less time to spend on them, which is, you know, Unfortunately, part of life as you get a little bit older is somebody somebody else is going to have to take the pictures. Um, but you know, you see the work that people do, uh, like John Cavalier and folks 
that are out there taking these incredible photos today. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. So uh, people there are taking go. some pretty cool photos. Yeah. There's no shortcuts. <laughs> no, there's no shortcut. All right, I'm going to see if we can do this. I'm going to Tommy gun a couple golf courses at you and just see um, how briefly you can either uh, surmise them, uh, give a little story about them, or just kind of whatever comes to mind. Uh, yep. the, fir- the first one is Mid Pines. Uh, really neat piece of ground. Very, very different uh, soil types than Piners number two. Less sandy, uh, which creates some challenges even within and kind of highlights the importance of you know, the terrain and the challenges that you can encounter, uh, mid pines was, was a tougher, uh, bit of restoration work for Kyle Franz there than number two was in, you know, in getting those native areas to work because it just isn't quite as sandy, a little bit more clay and a little bit more runoff from the surrounding site than number two had. And so some more problems to solve, but really cool, aesthetically, an awesome place to spend time. And 100% worth a visit if you're in the Pinehurst area. Pasa Tiempo. Uh, one of the coolest places ever, I think. Uh, I worked on the restoration there and, you know, our house in Santa Cruz, you're, well, I had, my, my room was up in the crow's nest and I could hear the, you know, hear the sea crashing out in the distance there and hanging out on the patio there at lunch. And, you know, we worked on the, I worked on the front nine and so the back nine, we played, you know, I don't know how many days a week, but that nine holes is about all you could ask for. Uh, and I think arguably, you know, McKenzie's, you know, if not his best work, some of his very best work. Um, so certainly a place that, that anybody should try to get to. And the really cool thing is that, you know, in the scheme of grand McKenzie works, that one you can at least pay and play, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Yeah. Okay. Rock Creek Cattle Company. The hardest construction project that I ever worked on by leaps and bounds uh, made that much more vexing by the fact that basically almost all of it was just sitting there, except that every little wrinkle in the ground was a boulder the size of a refrigerator and not a sand dune. So it was an awful lot harder to make any progress whatsoever. Um, but I learned a lot and one of the incredible natural sites, uh, and I went from there to Archer field, uh, the Renaissance club, which was a nice reinforcement of my understanding that, uh, Sandy ground makes a big difference, not just, you know, from drainage and from, you know, the cool features that are on Sandy ground, but the ease of editing, you know, the fact that, you can just shift things around with sandy soil and, you know, make adjustments quickly is a tremendous asset to why sandy courses are so good. Uh, you could not just shift something around quickly at Rock Creek. I have a feeling we could do this all day. I'm going to give you the last word and let you talk about any golf course that you want to. It could be a project you've worked on, something that meant a lot to you, that you're moved by, maybe it left a, a deep impression on you. The floor is yours. The... You know, I think I'll take it back to to the first course that, that I ever worked on in golf, which was uh, St. George's, uh, Long Island. Uh, I worked on the maintenance staff there when I was uh, my first year of undergrad, first and second year of undergrads during the summer. Um, this was before they had done so much uh, to 
move the course forward. Um, Gil Hans hadn't done his restoration work there. I was there again kind of during that time uh, and then have seen the course, you know, over time often because uh, my parents live in the area still and, and I'm out in the neighborhood a lot. And it's a testament to a bunch of things that are, I think, are just so important. I mean, number one, it's it's just the perfect members, you know, what you call members course, but, you know, what's really a golfer's course? Uh, it's not tremendously long at all, uh, but there's a lot of interesting holes. There's a lot of neat features. There's, the greens are so, so cool. And it's the kind of course that you just never get tired of playing. It's it's easily walkable. Um, I think it's everything that you could ask for from, from a golf course that you would play on a regular basis. Uh, and I think it's an illustration of the fact that, you know, really so few courses need to be at that, you know, quote unquote championship level to be fun and enjoyable and appropriate for the vast, vast majority of players. Uh, the second thing about St. George's is that it really illustrates how much of golf course architecture is kind of an evolution uh, and how much of it hinges on uh, the role of the superintendent, uh, which is, you know, probably underappreciated by a lot of golfers. But, you know, I was at St. George's, I can't remember what year it was, uh, working as an assistant when Gil did his restoration work. And it was a lot of years after that, uh, with the work of a very motivated superintendent who took over uh, from, he had been out at Shinnecock Hills, which is, I met him during Sabonic. Uh, Adam Jesse is the guy's name. And he, he took that course to another level with just consistent incremental improvement, expanding fairways, you know, working with Gil, removing trees, doing all these right things over time to the point where now, you know, you see pictures of St. George's on Instagram, you see John Cavalier taking photos of it. You hear, you know, people raving about this course. And, you know, for us, it was just this, you know, course down the road and it was, you know, nothing special. It wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a championship test. It was just this, you know, course people played at in the, in the town and, and that was that. But to see it get to the level that it's gotten to, you know, it's a testament to how much courses evolve over time and the, and the fact that you need patience. Uh, and that's even with, you know, projects that I've worked on, you know, it takes time. I mean, Cal Club took time after the project was completed, you know, a good chunk of years to get everything dialed in, to fix some of the rough edges, to get this and that figured out. St. George's took years and years and years of really consistent work to get where it is today. And it's just, you know, it's really rewarding to see. It's just cool to see what they've accomplished and what a great example it is of, neat architecture, you know, really good landscape architecture, you know, beyond the golf course architecture, uh, and just an incredible, fun, awesome golf experience for the vast majority of players. That's George Waters, and his book is Golf and Sand, How Terrain Shapes the Game. I have it. It's an easy, fantastic, and informative read, and it also looks great with the photos that George has taken himself in the course of his travels around the globe. I'll often pull it down, open it to a random page, and place it on a table somewhere in the house, just so it's there and I can see it when I pass by. Yes, I occasionally use George's book for staging. 
His closing thoughts on St. George's, a, a course on Long Island originally designed by Devro Emmett, reminds me of something Eric Iverson said, and something that's now never far from my thoughts and it's often repeated, and that's that about 80% of the impact you can make when renovating or restoring a course comes from tree removal and mowing lines. The other 20% is bunker work and green shaping and other bits, but it's mostly trees and grass that make the biggest difference. And part of that, I think, is largely what George was referring to about how the course has gotten incrementally but assuredly better through time by the superintendent chipping away the small things, slowly adjusting and, and widening fairways, thinning out trees where he could. It's a process, and it's never over, but it usually starts right there with trees and grass. George was also gracious in sharing his thoughts on USGA greens. Perhaps not a sexy topic, but one that's important to architecture. Uh, the feeling in some circles is that not only are USGA greens costly and sort of a corporatized upsell, but that they limit the ability to create significant contour and interesting green shapes. I can't speak with certainty personally on these points, but George does point out that unless you have the purest and most uniform type of sand to work with, almost all greens that are built now have some form of layering, mix, and drainage beneath them, or, in other words, are modified versions of the USGA green. So thanks to George Waters for spending some time with us. Thanks to all of you who listen and support the podcast. Check out the back issues and archive interviews of Feed the Ball at FeedTheBall.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. And you can email me directly with questions or comments at Derek underscore Duncan at Discovery.com. That's D-E-R-E-K. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music, and until we get a chance to do this again, adios.